Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for that kind welcome. That was really lovely. And thank you so much for the privilege it is to be able to speak this evening. I have to say, on my first time coming to St. Andrew's Baptist Church seven years ago, I don't think I ever thought <laughs> I would be standing here to speak. So it is a privilege, and I'm really, really grateful to be able to be here this evening, especially as we are looking at such an interesting chapter. A few weeks ago, I mentioned to someone that I was preparing a teaching on Esther 2, and they jokingly referred to it as the first ever Miss Universe competition. <laughs> I confess I actually didn't know that there was such a thing as a Miss Universe competition, so I went and did a bit of research, and indeed, there was, and in case you were interested, two weeks ago, they held the competition, and the 24-year-old competitor from France won. <laughs> the competition is held every year in January. You have to win the title of your home country before you can compete. You have to be under 27 years of age and unmarried, never having been married and not expecting to get married in the next year. <laughs> As if anyone can tell if that's going to be the case. There is a swimsuit and an evening gown presentation show and three days of preliminary interviews when people get to see the substance of the woman's mind and not just her beautiful exterior. The final competition kicks off with an announcement of the top 12, which is then narrowed down to the top 9, then the top 6, then the top 3, and finally the queen is crowned. For one year, she gets to reign and is expected to somehow make a difference that will contribute to the well-being of the world. While such elaborate competitions exist today, along with competitions like Miss World and Miss Earth, tonight we get to look at possibly the earliest beauty pageant, only not for a girl to be crowned a queen for one year, but rather to become the queen of one of the most powerful empires in the civilized world at that time. Last week, Fiona gave us a wonderful introduction to the Book of Esther, drawing us into the decadent scene of the capital of ancient Persia, which spanned 127 provinces. As she said, it was like the opening act of a play. And tonight, we're going to continue the second part of that opening act, we will remain in that opening act because we're going tonight to meet the main characters and we're going to see witness the first important events that will take place to tee up the events that will lead to the climax. There are three key preliminary events that take place in order to set the scene. We looked at the first one last week when one of the highest positions in the inner circle of the Persian emperor's house was made vacant. And tonight we'll look at the next two when that vacancy is filled and the king's life is saved. So part one, the queen is sought, in verses one to seven. I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open with you as we walk through the chapter. It will make it easier, I think, to follow, as I opted not to use slides tonight, but to tell it like a story and go through together. Our chapter begins in verse one with the placated King Xerxes, who has cooled down from his rage. Mind you, this is several years after the event with Vashti, but we'll touch on that later. Last week, we met the pompous, extravagant Xerxes parading his wealth and power before all his subjects and princes at a feast lasting six months with unlimited wine, goblets made of gold, ornate decorations, and the best food. It all comes to an uncomfortable halt, however, when the finiteness of his power is proved when his own wife, Queen Vashti, refuses to obey him. This enormous disgrace enrages the king, and upon the counsel of his advisors, the king removes Vashti from her place, leaving this highest position for a woman in the kingdom unoccupied. As our chapter begins, his anger has diminished, and he's reminded that there is no queen, and if the position is empty, it must be filled. 
It's interesting that the king does not seem to initiate the search. However, his advisors are quick to offer their thoughts. In keeping with the conspicuous consumption that we saw from last week, as Mike so aptly described it in his prayer, the decree is made that every single beautiful young woman in the land be rounded up and put in a harem for one year to receive the best beauty treatments and care in the land. The only prerequisites for these ladies is that they are virgins and they are beautiful. This method of choosing a new queen is extraordinary. It almost feels story-like. This search for the fairest in the land feels a bit like the prince in Cinderella making every girl in the land try on the glass slipper in the hopes of finding the one whom the shoe fits. Only this search, of course, is far more sinister and real. At the end of an elaborate 12-month beauty treatment, each girl has one chance to try and impress the king one night, after which she is consigned to life as a concubine in the second harem, never returning to the king again unless he specifically calls for her by name, or she wins and becomes queen. This is not the kind of beauty pageant you want to be a part of. Unlike the other contestants in Miss Universe, who will walk away from the event scot-free once they lose, these ladies are isolated and condemned to a life of waiting on the pleasure of the king amongst thousands of others in the same predicament. In keeping with the themes drawn up from last week, the sheer extravagance and wastefulness of this is just a continuation of the culture of excess, pleasure, greed, and consumption, which cannot help but leave an unpleasant taste in our mouths. Against this backdrop, however, the author draws our attention to two humble figures who do not hail from this background, yet find themselves right in the center of it, right at the citadel of Susa where all is taking place, Mordecai and his adopted daughter Esther. Immediately our eyes are pulled away from the glittering scene of the Persian court to look at two seemingly small, insignificant characters. Mordecai is introduced first, which is surprising. And the first thing we learn about him, and subsequently about Esther, is that he is a Jew and an exile. In verse 5 we read, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. It may be worth clarifying that it probably was not Mordecai himself who had been carried off from Jerusalem into exile, as we presently find ourselves in the kingdom of Persia, some years after the fall of Babylon had taken place, which, if Mordecai had been there for that, it would historically make him about a hundred years old by the time our story begins. But regardless, right away, the first thing we learn is that they are exiles and they are Jews. The fact that they are exiles requires us to do a bit of contextual work. Why were they exiles? When you open the Holy Scriptures and follow the course of Israel's history, you begin to notice a pattern between the Lord and his people. From the first pages, the Lord calls his people to follow him, love him, and obey him. Yet sadly, like true flawed people as we know ourselves to be, they are unable to do so faithfully. And throughout the course of the Old Testament, we read a cycle described um, succinctly at the start of Judges, whereby the people are enticed away from the Lord by other gods, The Lord then removes his hands of protection and allows other nations to conquer them. And from their place of oppression, they cry out to the Lord for help, and immediately he answers them and restores them to himself. They remain in that state for a while, but then it happens over again. They get distracted by the gods around them, and the cycle starts again. Usually, before they are conquered, the Lord sends messengers and prophets to warn them of what is coming. And yet, they proceed without listening. The great culmination of this particular process happens when Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem around 597 BC. 
In Jeremiah 27, God refers to Nebuchadnezzar as his servant, appointed to rule over the surrounding nations and judge his own nation. Yet, through Jeremiah, he warns his people of what is coming, pleading for them to repent. However, the people refuse to listen. So God, being faithful to his word, allows Nebuchadnezzar to conquer Jerusalem and lead most of the Jews into exile. In 2 Chronicles 36, we read, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who went with the king of, who was fighting with the king of Babylon. He gave them all into his hand. Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. So the people had strayed from the Lord. They'd been sent away into exile until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, which is where we find ourselves in our story this evening. With the rise of the Persian Empire, and in particular Cyrus the Great, the situation for the Jews did undergo a change. From the end of two chronicles and the book's the book Ezra and Nehemiah, we, learnt, we know that the Persian king Cyrus permitted the exiles to return home to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of God. However, some chose to remain, and it would seem that Mordecai and Esther were part of the remnant that sought to build a life in the new empire and opted to remain in it as exiles. Now there are two important things to note about what it means to be an exile at this stage, especially as we are getting acquainted with these two primary characters. First of all, in Jeremiah 29, we learn that the exiles were encouraged to work for the welfare of their conquerors, or their conquered nation, their, their conquering nation. So in Jeremiah 29, he gives his people a word through Jeremiah as to how they're to live. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. A brilliant example of this is Daniel and his friend Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who all serve as high officials in the court, with Daniel being highest among them as governor. And as far as we're told, they do their job and they seek the welfare of the land. This is also the precedent that we saw long before the Babylonian exile from Joseph in Genesis, who first sought the welfare of Potiphar's house and then of all Egypt in the time of a great famine. These exiles worked for the good of their oppressors and thereby were a huge asset and a light in their community. So the exiles who remained were to work for the welfare of the land. And we see that Mordecai does exactly this at the end of this chapter, which we'll get to later. I want to pause here for a moment, because part of our series is about being salt and light, and it would be a mistake to pass over this without drawing some correlation to our situation today. First of all, as Peter tells us in one of his letters, we also are exiles in a world in which we are aliens, um, a world in context that does not acknowledge God with many, many foreign gods. And one of the most powerful ways that we can represent Christ in our society is by not retreating to our Christian bubbles and only working for the good of each other, though that is important, but by being actively involved in our community and working for the betterment of our employers and those around us. 
And through that, pointing people to the Lord and reflecting Him in our society. One of my favorite examples of this happens to be my own father, who would far rather be preaching in a church, that's where his heart would be, yet God has distinctly called him to remain in the business world and in a particular company. And it has been a privilege to watch how he, by being strategic and having integrity in the company, his bosses come to him asking him to pray for the deals and the things that are on the line in their company. That is an example in my mind of what it means to serve wholeheartedly where we are and point our employers, our community to the Lord, like those exiles in Babylon. The second thing about being exiles for them, and particularly related to them being Jewish, is that they were still a minority race under the authority of a foreign power. Indeed, from this chapter, we do gain a sense of trepidation, a slight trepidation about being Jewish or making that known. For while they could assimilate into the culture around them and be actively involved and be successful, their faith and the unique demands of a religion that calls for the worship of one God and one God alone will inevitably clash with the culture worshiping many gods. We see this countless times in the stories of the exiles in the Bible. They're absolutely working for the good of their, of their captors, and indeed it seems deeply caring for them, as when Daniel, after hearing Nebuchadnezzar's dream, groans, if only it didn't have to be about Nebuchadnezzar. You can sense his care for the person of Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, when these officials and these higher powers um, demand things that would cause our Jewish friends to compromise their faith, they can't do it. Daniel continues to pray even when ordered not to. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not bow down. Mordecai, as we will see next week, will not worship Haman. And each of these choices have consequences and present situations which humanly seem impossible and terrifying. Yet God steps in and we see his faithfulness. This incompatibility of being Jewish and worshiping one God, I think helps us understand why we're told twice in this chapter that Mordecai warns Esther not to reveal her people. While being in exile in the land seems to be okay on the whole, and, in, and indeed they were able to thrive, there is something in essence about their faith um, which makes it precarious enough for Mordecai to warn her to be careful. They are certainly not the upper echelon of society, and there is an element of danger in being different, especially when your kind of different might force you to have to choose your God over the gods of your surrounding culture. This is clear next week, when right after saving the life of the king and proving himself to be a faithful member of society, Mordecai disobeys the king by refusing to bow down as that would compromise his faith. Again, here is another point for us thinking about being salt and light. Our loyalties need to be pretty clear. We should never be faithful citizens to the point of that it would cost our faith. Yes, we are to work for the welfare of those employing us. Yes, we're to be actively involved in causes around us. In fact, we should be known as ones taking active part in the politics and in the welfare of our community through community development, sustainability projects, social work. Yet never at the cost of our faith. Knowing full well that this might get us into trouble and cause a clash with our intolerantly tolerant society. So, after learning that Mordecai is both an exile and a Jew, we learn that he is the adopted father of an orphan named in Hebrew Hadassah, but referred to for the remainder of the book by her Persian name Esther, meaning star. After her parents die, we learn that Mordecai takes her as his own daughter. And indeed, throughout this chapter, we see a unique relationship between them. We see how much he deeply cares for her and her well-being. How he goes every day to the palace to find out if she is alright. 
how she, in verse 20, continues to honor and respect him even when out from under his care. We witness how their teamwork throughout the book, by both honoring and helping one another, stands in remarkable contrast to the relationships modeled thus far in their community. In fact, Mordecai, although situated in the midst of a glamorous, power-driven society which is highly dismissive of women, stands in contrast to that culture by his tender care for this one land that's in his charge, reflecting the heart of his God who commands his people over and over again to look to the orphans and widows in society and to care for the weak. Even we heard this morning in Andrew's sermon about a, sign, a marked sign of a pastoral community is our care and awareness of the weak. And here we see Mordecai role modeling again what that looks like. I actually have to tell you, in reading this chapter, I love the character of Esther, but I love the character of Mordecai. What an amazing role model he is, um, in, especially in the context in which he finds himself. We then learn a little bit more about Esther. Apart from being an orphan, she is described as incredibly beautiful. In Hebrew, the description is repeated twice for emphasis. She was beautiful of form and beautiful. Naturally, that draws the attention of the overseers, and in verse 8, we read that she was taken along with the others and carried off to the palace to try her chances with the king. Part 2, the queen is appointed, <laughs> verses 8 to 18, in this long chunk. Having been placed into the custody of Hegai, the keeper of the women, she immediately finds favor with him and is shown all kinds of special treatment. Given seven choice maids, being transferred to the best place in the harem, given all kinds of cosmetics and food. The word for favor that is used here, and I'll talk about this more in a moment, but the word for favor is important to note. It's the word chesed, which normally is used to describe the covenant loyalty between Yahweh and his people. It says that she obtained Hegai's covenant loyalty, and from that moment onwards, he is Team Esther in this beauty pageant. At this point, the author stops and tells us a bit more about the beauty pageant and the search for the fairest in the land. How was it all to be judged? In verses 12 to 16, we learn that each girl underwent an elaborate 12-month beauty process with oils and spices used primarily for purification as well as beautification, using the best there was to offer to prepare her for the king. And as we've said before, it culminates when at the end of that year, they each have one chance to try and impress the king, one night, and they can bring with them one thing to aid them in this. Esther wisely takes the counsel of Haggai, Haggai sorry, the man who not only would be the expert in this, but is also really on her side. Unlike the Miss Universe competition, when the final number is brought from the top six to the top three based on the contestant's answer to a question of world issues, these ladies are really just being measured on their physical attributes and ability to please. Finally, Esther's turn comes in verse 17. And, ta-da, she wins his favor, and she is crowned queen. And a great banquet is had, a great feast. You might be thinking, well, we just had a great feast. Last week, this is what Fiona told us all about. But in actual fact, as we've, uh, we learn in verse 16, this feast um, took place in the seventh year of his reign, four years after the last great six-month feast that had been held. So naturally, it's about time for another one. Feasts or banquets in Esther are important things. One person said, you can track the outline of Esther based on the feasts or banquets that are had. So while the first feast in the book marked the removal of a queen, this second feast in the book marks the instatement of a queen. Installation of a queen. Now, before we move on, there are two things about Esther in this section that are 
both repeated three times, and worth noting, again, as we are getting to know our characters in this second half of the opening act. The first thing is that in three different ways the author chooses to emphasize that Esther heeds counsel. In verse 10, 15, and 20, twice we learn that she followed what Mordecai had instructed her regarding her people, and once we learn that she heeded the counsel of Haggai in choosing what to take with her to the king. Now, it's funny because some people read that and they think, oh, you know, she just has no agency. However, I'm not sure that it is just that Esther is a puppet who does what's told. Rather, in all three cases, I believe she demonstrates great wisdom in taking the counsel of those around her. Her discernment to follow Mordecai's advice and not make her people known shows she respected him, but also was probably street smart in her own right and aware of the, uh, the danger. Then, when given the chance to take one thing to the king, instead of basing her choice on her own little experience, she shrewdly takes the counsel of the most knowledgeable man there would be on these things, the keeper of all the women, who's been doing this for years. Again, um, I don't want to make much of this, but it is significant that the author seems to emphasize that she is not just beautiful, but also wise. We certainly see later in the story that she's certainly not spineless, and indeed grows in her ability to act assertively. And perhaps the author intended this as a humorous contrast between Esther and Vashti. However, I believe there's more to this portrayal than just humor, as it reveals something about her character. The second thing that is emphasized about this is that three times it says that she finds favor. She finds favor in verse 9 with Haggai, who really from day one is rooting for her to win, and showers all kinds of special favor on her. She finds favor in verse 15 with everyone who sees her. And most importantly, she finds favor with the king himself. And ultimately, as we know, wins the crown. This favor is an interesting thing. First of all, throughout the text, there's no given reason as to why she finds this favor. Now, one could turn and say, well, it was obvious. She was beautiful. And indeed, she was. But let's remember the context in which she finds herself being measured. It's not like she is on the street randomly being plucked out as someone who is beautiful. She is literally surrounded by all the most beautiful women from 127 provinces of ancient Persia. As I was looking into this Miss Universe competition, when I saw a picture of the whole host of contestants stood together on the stage, I honestly don't know how on earth you could pick one girl as more beautiful than the other. They were all completely beautiful and different, which is why the Miss Universe competition has to be based on other things than just their looks. And exactly here, at the end of the day, something more than just her appearance had to cause her to stand out. I mentioned briefly earlier the use of the word hesed in describing favor. There are two words that are actually used between these three uses of finding favor. In verse 9, as I say, we saw it was the word hesed, meaning covenant loyalty. In 15, it's just a general term for grace and favor. But when we hit verse 17, we encounter both words together, almost to emphasize how much favor Esther had with the king himself. She obtained from the king both his favor and his covenant love. From both of these terms, we derive our understanding of the concept of grace, which, as every Christian should know, is something entirely unmerited. The grace of Jesus Christ is something that we have um, earned. It is something given as a reflection of the giver, as the person has done nothing to merit it. And here we see Esther walk into unsought-after, inexplicable favor, which in the end is the thing that causes her to stand out and win the beauty contest. It is remarkable that one who was so utterly removed from this scene by her social standing as an exile, a Jew, and an orphan, receives this favor with everyone who meets her and is catapulted into this high position. 
Her story, and especially the threefold favor she receives, is strikingly reminiscent of the account of Joseph in Genesis, who follows a remarkably similar path. Sold by his brothers into slavery and sent in exile to Egypt, he finds favor, first with Potiphar, one of the highest Egyptian officials, and is made the successful overseer of his house. This is short-lived, however, after he is framed by Potiphar's wife and then put in prison. Yet in his prison cell, God causes him to again find favor with the prison guard, who, like Haggai, showers favor on Joseph and trusts him to keep the prison in order. From his place in prison, Joseph is asked to interpret one of Pharaoh's dreams, and when the interpretation is correct, he is showered with favor by Pharaoh and given the highest position in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And for what purpose? Well, unlike the book of Esther, which as we've seen does not give any reason or justification for this favor, the Genesis account of Joseph's story is unmistakably clear that this elevation was by design. In Genesis 45, Joseph says to his brothers, Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. As we think about that in light of our Esther chapter, although it is not mentioned in Esther, this still brings to us the question, why has she received this favor? The book of Esther has a unique place in the Bible, as it is the only book in which the name of God is not mentioned even once. And so, as we are confronted with events that would suggest um, the workings of a great agent, because he's unnamed, it's our, it's our challenge as a reader to look for him, to look for that agent behind these things. Certainly Mordecai in the next few chapters, although he does not name him, is undoubtedly clear that Esther has been elevated for such a time as this. In his mind, it is no mistake that our chapter began with one of the highest positions in the kingdom sitting empty and unoccupied. And not just any political position, but rather the second position in the king's household, the first position in his heart, the position of queen. Now be that a coincidence or not, it is no mistake that space in the inner sanctum was created just before an advocate in high places would be needed. Second, he does not seem to doubt why one who is so unlikely to be elevated is catapulted to this high position. And although she does not know it yet, like Joseph, who is lifted up to preserve life, she too, in her high place, is given the opportunity to do the same. The reminder is the impossible is not impossible when there is an agent behind it. And it is a reminder that if and when God chooses to use us, no obstacle can stand in the way. He will cause us to find favor. The final part comes in the last few verses, verses 19 to 23. It takes us back to Mordecai, whom we have left to decide for a moment. He is at the gate of the king, perhaps on duty as an official, as some suggest. This reference to the virgins being gathered a second time could have been referring to them being gathered to be sent back home, now that the position of queen is filled and the pageant is over. While waiting at the gate, he happens to overhear a plot against the life of the king. And immediately he takes advantage of Esther's high place as an insider with close access to the king, and he notifies her. She then honors him by relaying the information in his name, and the king's life is saved. This is the first instance we see them working as a team, relaying information to each other from outside the palace to the inside, which later we see becomes an essential partnership in the business of saving the Jews. This episode, though short and random, becomes significant later on, but it is important to highlight here 
Um, in light of what we talked about earlier about being exiles, Mordecai here proves himself to be an obedient servant to the Lord as an exile by being a faithful citizen and seeking the welfare of the land in which he finds himself. Although he could have harbored his own grudge against the king for taking his adopted daughter, he acts out to save his life for his good. And while next week his devotion to the adopted empire does not cause him to compromise his faith, for now he has been given a sterling opportunity to prove his faithfulness and to honor God. And so our chapter comes to an end, yet the story is just beginning. Only Act 1 has been completed. Esther is queen. Mordecai at the moment is in good graces. What will happen next? But before I finish, I want to close by lingering a moment on the fact that, again, that although the Lord our God is not named, it does not mean he is not at work. As we are beginning to see the evidence of the great agent behind these things, we are reminded that so often there are greater things going on than we can ever imagine. We who believe in the Lord know him to be faithful to his people and to his promises. Promises to protect his people and preserve life. And Esther is a reminder that the events in our lives are sometimes the very things he's orchestrating for his purposes. When we are tempted to feel discouraged about the world or the state of things outside our control, it's a timely reminder that there's nothing that happens on earth by way of kings, rulers, powers, and authority that can happen outside God's control. And he is trustworthy, and because he can be trusted and is in control, we can rest. So there's the end of Act 1, as we see it. We see Esther and Mordecai, and we've gotten to know them in this chapter. And it's exciting to see how God chooses to use them in the ones that will follow. As we turn this evening to communion, we are reminded again of how other certain events on a night so long ago appeared so very bleak in the moment and yet were so utterly necessary in the grand scheme of things.